we began a, a couple weeks ago. We were at Surf Sunday last week where we uh, started working. We're going to do a kind of a slow progression through uh, the end of, of Jesus's life on earth and, and where he's at in this. And so we skipped ahead to Matthew chapter 26 and we began with the setting the scene a couple weeks ago. And today we pick up um, in, in Matthew uh, 26 again, verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, Turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up, and the ushers will bring one to you. Um, it's a, for, before we get there, like, have you ever noticed around a dinner table, around a table, you can experience every bit of, of pain and joy in life around a table? For me personally, I've, I've sat at a table where a, a husband had to announce their infidelity to their wife, complete depravity. And yet at the same table, I, I sat where they, where they reconciled and see, see hope in that. I've been at a table with immense joy where someone's announcing they're pregnant. I've been at a, a table where I've experienced laughter, pain, but my assumption is, is all of us have experienced some form of laughter, joy, pain, or sorrow at a table. I don't know what it is about sitting around a table where you can look at someone else. Maybe the pain is that you guys have been sitting around a table with your family and there's been no words, and the pain is silence. But what's unique about a table is that when you, when you come around a table, you can experience so many different things. And what's unique about where we are in the scripture today is that Jesus, around a table, sets up his new covenant, sets up the kingdom to come, sets up exactly what's coming and where it's going and how it's going to implement, and then teaches his last bit of truth around this table. But he also sits at that table with a betrayer. He shows us at the table exactly what it means to, to, to serve and to live a part of this kingdom. And he declares at this, at this table specifically how it's going to be done. What happens at the table at this time is so unique because he basically gives us a picture of everything that's past, everything that's coming, and what to be expected all around the table. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend two weeks around the table. Today we're going to discuss and define kind of what happens and what the point of the table is in this time period and why Jesus specifically picked this time. And then next week we're going to look at more application on how we are to take part in this table. But I challenged you guys uh, a couple weeks ago to not just come to this narrative where you've been, oh yeah, yeah, I've read this a bunch and I, I know how this works. Like we're going to work our way up to Easter. We're calling resurrection because that's what it should be called. We're going to way up to resurrection. And you're like, yeah, I know what happens. Jesus, you know, experiencing immense pain. He, he's killed. He, he's raised three days later and he's, you know, he's shows himself to a bunch and he ascends to heaven. And so you kind of know the story. And so I've challenged you not to just go to the end. Instead, what we wanted to do is we wanted to spend the next eight weeks, well, I guess now six weeks, going through this story, building up, culminating on um, Resurrection Sunday. And I challenge you to take a look at the characters that are on, on scene. Because every single character that is in this narrative, that is in this, in this, in this bit of history, plays a role. And God is enlightening, he is, he is rebuking, He is challenging each of us through each of these characters. And some of us, like I said, we can probably relate too well to some characters that we don't want to and others that we desire to be like we see a, a huge gap in. But either way, my challenge is as we look at the table, as we look at the characters involved, as we, as we experience this time, my challenge is that you wouldn't just rush to the end. That you would sit at this table, sit at this meal like the disciples did and experience what the disciples were experiencing because I think that's what God had intended all along. Not that we would 2,000 years later just kind of brush the end and say, okay, we know the answer, okay, move on, but that we would let the, his words speak to us in a way that's, that's provocative and rich. And, and what Jesus does during this very, very common ritualistic Passover meal is not common at all. In fact, he shakes the boat, turns it upside down once and for all, and leaves no doubt what his plan is, who's in control, and when it's going to happen. So let me read it, and we'll, we'll dive in. 
Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And I began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written for him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who, was, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, it broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had drinking, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, you, for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there's, a, there's an immense amount of, of things going on. A couple little details in this text uh, we pick up. In the Gospels, if you look at all of the Gospels, the, the, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also John as well, you pick up a lot more understanding of what's happening here. But you have to kind of piece it together. So I'm going to try and bring some clarity to those, um, to what happens here, and then we'll move in. First off, uh, Jesus uh, tells the disciples, the disciples ask, hey, where are we supposed to take the Passover? It's most likely Thursday or Thursday night. The, the day would have started in the evening for Friday. But either way, he's there. Where are we supposed to do this? And Jesus lets in on this little secret that he had already had a conversation with someone in town about where to hold the meal. Now, I believe that the reason why he's secretive about this is that, if you remember correctly, Judas has already betrayed Jesus. He's already gone to the chief priest. He's already gotten the, the sum of money. And he's already betrayed the, Jesus in this point. And so Jesus, being well aware of that because he is God and fully man at the same time, is, is, is acting on his purposes, God's purposes, not what the chief priests want. And so he does it in secret so that, this, so that he can actually instill and have this meal with his disciples and not have to worry about what's coming. And so Jesus tells, uh, we find out from the other gospel that it's Peter and John to go and, and prepare this stuff. And so Peter and John head into town and prepare this, this thing. He's told them to find a, a man carrying a water jar, which seems crazy in a, in a city where there's hundreds of thousands of people going around. But Men didn't carry water jar on their head that way, so that was a very obvious thing. But either way, they found him. They go to the house. They're at the upper room. And what they're there for is to celebrate the Passover. Now, to you and I, the Passover is something like, okay, we've, we've heard about it, we've read about it, we think about it. But, but to them, it's a, a very, very deep, ingrained, ritualistic, almost com uh, like must-happen command for every single Jewish person. And so they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to keep the Passover because this is what we're expected. And what's unique is Jesus picks this festival, of all the festivals, to, to implement what he does tonight and to actually have the crucifixion and resurrection happen. God picks this festival. They had plenty of festivals. The festival of booths, the festival of the Day of Atonement where the sacrifice was for sins. There's lots of, which is the most holy day. There are all kinds of festivals that happen, usually centralized in Jerusalem. And it's this festival that's in place. It's the Day of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. Those are two words, again, that don't make as much sense to us. But Passover was a day with the idea of a lamb being slaughtered, um, where they would take it to the, the temple and the lamb would be slaughtered, then ten, a minimum of 10 people or, or no more than 20 people would eat of this lamb and hold a Passover meal, which was very, very ritualistic. 
they had to have bitter herbs and, and unleavened bread and, and, and different cups of wine for different specific things. And they had all this stuff in place. The, the, the day of unleavened or the feast of unleavened bread was a celebration that the, that the Israelites had because of being freed from Egypt. So Passover was the lamb. If you remember Exodus, going back, this is an Old Testament story. Moses, like, let my people go. You've maybe seen a Disney movie about that, right? Like, either way, there's this, there's this one scene on this where the, the scriptures talk about how finally the culmination of Pharaoh's hardened heart that's going back and forth between Moses and Aaron to free the Israelites from the Egyptian rule and slavery. And it ends with this, okay, God is going to, he's going to kill every firstborn of every single person in the area. And the only way to keep from that happening for the Jewish people is that they would have to kill a lamb take its blood and, and, and put it on the doorpost and the Spirit of God would pass over them. But then every single cattle and every single, every single animal and every single family would lose their firstborn child in that night. And so that's where the Passover comes from. It's the idea that the blood of the Lamb protected them from God's wrath for what he was doing to the Egyptians. And so that's the Passover. Well, unleavened bread was when they left e- Egypt, they had to leave in haste. And so what would normally happen is they would take yeast or, or leaven and they'd put it in the bread so that it would rise and then they would take a little piece before it was baked and save it aside for the next bread. And then they'd put it in there and then do the same thing. And that's how they would do leaven. Well, scripturally, biblically, leaven is almost always used in a negative way. Leaven is, 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 is something that takes over and brings in and so it, dis, it disrupts something that is pure. And so in haste, the Israelites left without all leaven. And so it shows them in the, in the wilderness without the leaven of the, the sin and to be set apart. And so God has this feast where they would do unleavened bread. So building up to the feast, the preparation, they would get rid of all the leaven in their, in their home and they would eat unleavened bread for these eight-day feasts, which included the Passover. Those two became kind of synonymous. Passover, feast of unleavened bread. It's an eight-day thing. It always started with Passover went into that. And so this is this normal, almost 1,500-year continuous thing and celebrating very specifically the freedom they have in God as his people from the oppression of Egypt. The experience and the hardship that the, that the ancestors felt in the wilderness and the provision of God through the, through the manna and all of those things were celebrated every single year in a very specific month and a very specific day over and over and over again. Well, this is the culmination of a huge thing. They say some 250,000 lambs were slaughtered at the day of, of, of um, the Passover around Jesus' time. It's just ridiculous. Blood is being spilt so that they could continue to remember their freedom they have. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go to Thanksgiving meal, I will be really honest. Maybe you guys would say I'm not patriotic or whatever you want to say, but I don't sit down and go, oh, what was that guy's name? And what did they do? And how come we're celebrating Thanksgiving? No, I'm not, I'm not celebrating the history of Thanksgiving. I'm sorry, that's just not me. When I sit down, I'm celebrating what I'm thankful for what God's done in my life and everything else. Sure, I'm thankful that we have our country, and that's great, but I'm not really celebrating our, <laughs> our crusades or whatever you want to call it in that day. Thanksgiving isn't this holy day to us. And I would assume most of us, maybe we, we, we do, we try to be intentional about being thankful. But it's just really an excuse to eat a lot of really good food, probably too much of good food, right? <laughs> and to wear your, your stretchy pants. Like, that's, that's kind of what that is, right? Like, that's the, you guys don't have those? Yeah. Um, but, but it's not really there. Now, I'm just, this is conjecture. This is me reading into it anyways. But I can't imagine being a Jewish person in Jesus' day Making the trek, which is, it's a lot of details, a lot of time. You got to commit. You got to find space. It's chaotic. There's thousands of people, especially the introverts are probably going crazy, right? Like this is in, out of control. 
and you got to make your way and do this, and you're celebrating a freedom that you once had from Egypt as you're oppressed by Rome. Like, I can't, I feel like I, I would come to that meal a little differently. Like, yeah, I, look what God did. He freed us from Israel. Here we are under Roman oppression. Okay, cool. We saw great works from you, God. But we're ready for some more. And that's what the Passover was. The Passover was a celebration of remembering what God has done. He's still good. He's still in control. His, his covenant with you is good and in place. His promises are real. But I feel like maybe the Passover, although it was a good time, and maybe it would be usually a happy time where they celebrate and they would, they would do all kinds of enjoying food together and stuff like that, I still feel like it'd feel a little weird to celebrate freedom when you're under oppression. So that's the Passover happening. And Jesus picks, and God picks, God with Jesus picks this time to be the time that he is going to be crucified. And he's going to implement and start the beginning of something drastically new. So at the table, you have this event happening, the Passover. And at the table, you have a bunch of individuals. You have, you have his disciples, the 12 that have been following him all along. It's Jesus and the disciples. We, don't, we, we know that the host of the home isn't taking part in this meal with, with them. And so it's just Jesus and his disciples. And included in those disciples is Judas. And it's important to, to know that. And I wanted to talk real quickly about it. But before I do, I want to give you a quick order of what probably happened at this Last Supper. Because it's kind of like hard to piece together. So most likely the order. Now, the, the Passover meal had very specific things. You would do a first wine, and then you would have, a, and each cup represented something along the way, and then you'd have these bitter herbs in place, and the bitter herbs would help remind the, the, the difficulty that the Israelites had to go through the wilderness, and you'd dip the bread in the bitter herbs, and then at some point the host would stand up, and he would get up and say, okay, here we are at the Feast of, um, of, of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, and they would, they would tell you the story of what God had done, and they'd work through it. And they, so it was very ritualistic with the ceremonial cleanse on the front end of it, very ritualistic. Now what happens with Jesus' meal here, what happens here is we know that they do the ceremonial cleanse, okay, and then they do the first wine, which is the beginning with some, with some bread and some, some bitter herbs. But then in that moment, we get from Luke 22, the disciples decide to have their argument about who's greatest, I don't get it, but they decide to start talking about who's greatest around this table. Now, when Jesus talks about reclining this table, it definitely was not a table like this. It was a low, low table. And when they would recline, in, in the past, it was in haste, like wear your sandals and run because they were talking about leaving Egypt. But it had slowly over time come a spot to recline. And so what they would do is they'd actually sit with their hand on their head like this, and they would lay with their feet away from the, the table, and they would eat with this one. So they literally reclined at the table together. And it would be set up in a U form like this. And at the very front of the U would be where the food is and all that stuff. And that would be where the host is as well. And then everyone around that. So that's, despite what you see in some of the pictures of the Last Supper, it wasn't a long rectangle table. That was kind of more of what, what's happening. And so they're, they're sitting there, and they do their ceremony cleanse. The, the disciples argue about who's greatest, which is astronomical at this point, right? Either way they do. And this is where I believe we get out of John 13. Jesus stands up, pulls a towel, and starts washing his disciples' feet. And he teaches them very clearly what it means to be first in his kingdom. And so he does that experience. He washes every single disciple's feet. Every single one of them. He gets down and washes them. We'll talk more about that next week. And he gets down and washes every single one of their feet. And then, after he does that, sits back down, and then Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, the, 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 the word that we get in the New Testament here is so weak in comparison to what they experienced there. 
when it says that when they heard that one of them is going to betray them, they were very sorrowful, that word is actually violently in pain. There was, they were agonized over the thought that one of these men around Jesus is going to betray him. They were deeply agonized. It was violently agonized, like almost like uncontrollably painful, like excruciating, so much so that begins this question series, right? We see it, is it me, Lord? And that better is, is, is better translated, it's not me, is it? But you know what's unique about that? And I never picked up on this. You and I read this story, we read this history, and we come into it, and the, the writers are in place, and we know from the very, very beginning who the betrayer is, Right? I'm like, oh, it's Judas. His name's last. I mean, obviously, like, this is going to happen. We, we kind of like, sucks to be you, Judas. We know the story, how it goes, right? We just kind of see it all the way through. But what do the disciples do? They don't sit at the table and go, oh, it's Judas over there. <clears throat> I'm not going to say anything. It's just it's that guy right there. Like, they don't, they don't know it. I, I know it's going to be written. I've seen it. His name's written last. In fact, you know, it's got to be that. In fact, Judas is, is deemed as one of the more trustworthy disciples because he's the treasurer. So at the table, where God's kingdom is set in motion and defined and understood and clearly set out at the table, the one who's betraying every other 11 disciples there have no idea it's him. I, I don't know if that, that resonates with you. Like, th- think about that. All the way at the table, we already know he's already betrayed Jesus, but he has walked and operated in such a way that he has fooled every single disciple who spent every single minute with him. And he betrays. And something I didn't pick up on as I was reading this this week, I hadn't picked up on it ever until I was studying again this week. Um, all the disciples ask, is it me, Lord? But when Judas asked the question, Rabbi, is it me? Now, Rabbi is still a, a, a very, like, beautiful thing to say. But isn't it interesting how the disciples have moved to him as Lord and to Judas he's still just teacher. As the disciples say, is it me? So this betrayal thing happens. We get from the Gospel of John that Peter pushes John to ask Jesus who it is. And somehow in this, in this moment of this very intimate room, Peter, Jesus lets John know who it is. He lets John know who it is and, and says, who, it's who I'm going to do this and gives it to him. And then Judas asks the question, is it me, Rabbi? And Jesus says, you have said so. It's not, he's not saying, well, what do you think or whatever. It's like, well, you tell me. You tell me. And in a way, it's almost an invitation of, what are you going to do? And it tells us in, in the Gospel of John that Satan came into his heart at that moment, and Jesus says the most painful words I think he could have ever heard from our Lord and Savior. But he does it in quiet, because he says to Judas, go do what you came to do. Go ahead, go. Go do what you came to do. And so Judas leaves, and, and we know from the Gospel of John as well that Judas leaves, and the disciples assume he's leaving because Jesus asked him to do something for the feast or to give money to the poor because he's the treasurer. So the disciples still have no idea it was Judas that's going to betray. And then from that spot, Jesus answers, okay, does this, then Jesus institute, institutes Eucharist, or which translates giving thanks, right? He introduces this idea of the Last Supper, so that's the chronological order of what happens at this table. You, you'd have to read all of the scriptures of each New Testament, of each gospel to pick up on how that plays out. But that's what happens in the scene on Passover. So what's unique about that? So Jesus, we, we know about the portrayal. Judas is, is 
unbelievably hypocritical. He's unbelievably hidden, and he's able to deny Christ, yet no one see it. I mean, his, his disciples were convinced he was 111. They were, that agony that they were having, they were having because they couldn't believe any one of them doing it. Painful, right? Then Jesus gets to this section. He says, okay, and he comes at the meal, part of the meal, which makes sense, and he would stand up, and usually the host would stand up and pick up the bread and talk through the story and dip the bread in the, in the, in the bitter herbs and say, this is, this, is the, this is to signify the freedom that we got or the pain in the wilderness, and we do this. But Jesus, like, he, he calls an audible. He changes directions at a very common meal. It's like you and I, when we hear the story of resurrection, we just kind of keep thinking it, like, okay, this is what happens. For them, okay, Passover, this is where we're at. This is what he's doing. He picks up the bread, and he says, this is what we're doing. Instead, he says, instead of going into anything, he says, this is my body. I'm telling you, if they had record players, they'd have been like, you know, like, what is he talking about here? Right? They understood very clearly what that meant. And I'll talk about that in just a second. They understood this, but they didn't get why he was saying it. It was his. And then he goes on and says, this is a cup of my blood. Drink this. And we get in the Gospel of Luke, we get this is the new covenant in some early manuscripts or some later manuscripts in Matthew. It adds new, but it has taken out because it wasn't the best manuscript. But because Luke says new, it definitely is the new covenant. And then the Apostle Paul quotes it again, the new covenant in Corinthians 11. So what is this covenant term? I feel like for you and I, that's not really like a common language thing we use. Like, hey man, you want a covenant together? Like, that'd be awesome. Let's do that. Like, that's not common for us. Essentially what Jesus is saying, just spoiler alert, essentially what Jesus is saying is, will you marry me? He's saying, will you marry me? to these disciples. That's essentially what he's saying. But let's, let's talk about covenant for a second. Because most of us understand God and, and the truth of Bible under two fronts. One is we believe that God's love is conditional or God's love is unconditional. Let me explain that. Some of us would say, maybe say it more free, like God's love is unconditional. It does not matter what I do, he will love me. Right? We say no matter what. And, and some will say, no, that's, that's the way, that's the truth. And then others will say, no, no, no. God loves us, but he expects of us to do these things to live inside of his love. And what's interesting is if you look at the Bible, it almost seems like we have contradictory verses that point to both. In Exodus and in Leviticus, we see some of the laws where they say, if you want to receive God's blessing, you do these things. If you don't do these things, you get the curse of God. Well, which one is it? Unconditional or conditional? Most of us struggle with that unless we understand it under covenantal language. So real quick, I'm just going to try and un- unravel this a little bit, okay? Covenantal la- language is something that every single Jewish person in this day understood and knew. A covenant would normally happen through, when God is involved, covenant is always include, included blood, just in case you're wondering, okay? Blood is, we get a Levit- Leviticus 17, blood is where the life is. But a covenant is something where it's a binding agreement that it does not matter what the other person does, I'm upholding my agreement. However, there are conditions for them at times. There are conditions, expectations within covenantal relationships. So we saw in Moses, in this whole, in this whole Passover thing where Moses afterwards said, okay, we, we're free. He, he took uh, all the lambs and, and slaughtered them, and they started splattering blood on the individual, saying, you're a part of this covenant. The blood uphold you. So if I'm standing there and I get blood splattered on me, I'm saying that I covenant with you, God, but my body pays for what conditions I fail to do so. So let's fast forward. I'll make this a little bit clearer out of Abraham, Abram at the time. 
Genesis 15, God promises Abram to make him a great nation with many, many descendants. And it says, it, all of you are going to be many descendants. Abram asks a very <laughs> understanding question. How do I know, God, that you're really going to do that? Like, how do I know? And, and so God says, okay, well, let's, 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 I want you to go ahead and take some animals, cut them in half, and set them, arrange them down the way. And to Abraham, to, to us, we're like, what? Cut animals in half? To him, this made sense. This made sense. This is an understanding language because with God, it was always, it was always blood. It was always uh, something we do to make a covenant. This was understood, understandably good language for him to understand. So he did it. He takes some animals, cuts them in half, lays them down a row, okay? Puts them in place, blood's in the middle. And now Abram's just waiting for his moment, which would most likely mean that God's going to show up and say, Abram, now walk through the animals. And the reason why Abram would walk through the animals in, in, in history and anywhere else, whenever covenants happened, never did the Lord walk through. It was always the lower person. So the servant or the peasant or the, would always come through and walk through the blood because what they're saying is they're walking through the blood saying that I covenant to uphold this, but if I fail, it's on me. I covenant to do so. So Abram's waiting. We know that, that, that God shows up to see in the dark, dark of, of judgment and comes in this cloud of fire and everything, and God passes through the animals. That is so shocking. That's the first shock of the situation because what God is saying is saying, I covenant to bless you, Abram. I'm going to bless you. And if I don't, I will be torn to pieces for you. That's a shock in and of itself, right? But the, the second and more provocative shock is Abram doesn't actually walk through. So then what that's saying is God is essentially saying, I covenant to bless you, Abram. And if I fail under those conditions, I'll be torn to pieces. But if you fail under those conditions, I'll be torn to pieces. God changes the covenant in a master way where he's like, it's all on him. Abram doesn't have to do a single thing. The covenant's in place. So, so when, when, when blood is spilled and things are in place, covenants are conditions. We have to live in light of this so he will bless us, right? So we see, you keep these commandments, I bless you. You don't keep these commandments, I, I curse you. We see this whole thing happening over and over again. But the covenant was that if you fail in this new covenant with Abram, when you fail the conditions, I get torn to pieces is what God's saying. Fast forward to Jesus, sitting around the table with some disciples. Picks up the bread and says, hey, this is my body. This is my body. I'm, I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb. It's broken for you. It's beaten, torn in pieces for you. This is my blood. This is my blood. When you drink of this, you understand right now that it is my blood that is pouring out. You know what's happening? In the culmination of the cross, <laughs> Christ, is, Christ ended the Passover and instituted a new memorial to himself. Would not look back on the lamb in Egypt anymore. Wouldn't look back at all. It would look, instead, it would look as a symbol of God's redeeming love to the very lamb of God, who by sacrificing, shedding, sacrificial shedding of his own blood took away the sins of the whole world. In that one meal, Jesus both terminated the old and inaugurated the new covenant. Do you see how that works? So he's, he's, he's taking both. So is God's love conditional or unconditional? Well, it's both. How can it be both? 
Well, because Christ lived a perfect life there in line, sealing the deal to be blessed, but then he was crucified, taking the curse. See, the deep tension is resolved through the cross. Jesus takes upon himself the curse for breaking the covenant. Meanwhile, all of us who have disobeyed the covenant receive through faith in Christ the reward that Jesus deserved for keeping the covenant. Let me say it this way. Uh, Tim Keller said it this way, which I think is beautiful. It's called paradoxical obedience. So God's love is unconditional, right? But it is conditional as well. We see it there because it culminates on the cross. He says, uh, Tim Keller says that in this paradoxical be obedience, I will fulfill the law because Christ took on the conditions of the law. I desire to fulfill the law because Christ took on the conditions. But when I fail, which I will, I can rest in his unconditional love. Jesus filled the conditions of the covenant so that we could be received unconditionally. And that's what's happening when Jesus picks up a covenant. He's saying, do you, do you see what I've done? I'm, I'm, not only, I'm not only taking on the curse for you, but I'm taking on the curse from God so that you can receive the blessing of God. I have taken the conditions so that you can be received unconditionally. So when we take communion, which the church loves to divide on, right? Well, is it wine or is it juice? Is it gluten-free or not gluten-free, right? We have all those kind of questions, right? Ours is usually juice, but I guarantee some of that stuff stays for a while. You might be getting a little fermentation in it. I'm telling you that right now. It's not, it's not how it's done. You know, do we drink from one cup or little cups or do we do it every single week or do we not do it? The, the point is the covenant. The point is the very thing that we are celebrating, not the implementation of the sacraments, although that's a beautiful thing, and we're called to do it as often as we gather. But what we're doing is something so bigger than mm, some dry bread and a little bit of juice. What we're doing is, is the new covenant. And every single disciple in that room left that table knowing exactly what needed to happen. They understood, oh, Jesus has to die. If he is the Passover lamb, then he has to be crucified. They didn't know crucified, but he will be crucified. He has to be killed. He has to be just killed and his blood has to be spilled so that we can be free. So when we take a little cracker or juice, guys, guys, we got to stop seeing it as some little practice we just do. We don't need to make it holier than it is, but what, we, what it, what it, stands for is so holy. It stands for Jesus taking on the conditions of the covenant so that we can be loved unconditionally. It stands for him saying, I am no longer going to be a God in the distance that, that, that leaves you or sees you struggling to follow me. Instead, I have come and I have given you a way to follow me. So that when I surrender my life to Christ, when I, when I say yes to God in that marriage vow, I receive not only his unconditional love, but the ability to live by his conditions. And now I desire to fulfill him because I know what he went through for them. This is the reason we obey, not because out of duty or want to lord it over you. It's because it's beautiful. Because you know what Jesus did? He fulfilled those for us. So why wouldn't we desire to do that out of the love he has given us? That's what we do. We obey because he loves us. 
We don't obey because we're ashamed and we feel that way. We obey because we saw exactly how much he had to go through so that we could obey. Man, every single person in that place had no idea what they were getting into, but I can tell you right now, after the shame, and by the way, every single disciple, not just Judas, every single one of them bail on Jesus, right? They're all out, like scattered. And, and yet, this beautiful new covenant, which they didn't understand at this moment, we get to celebrate today in full, clear understanding that we are in a covenantal relationship with God. So that means a couple things. One is we desire to obey God. And when we take of communion, we don't take it lightly. We'll get there in just a second. Second thing is he's trustworthy. Some of you, some of you college students, your girls like, I just want to be married. Like, put a ring on it, right? Like, you want that? Here, here God has, through Christ, has said, marry me. And you know what the best part is? Like, I love my wife, and she's amazing, but she has no guarantee that I'm going to be faithful for my whole life. Right? There's, I mean, there's, there's no guarantee until the end of life. But you know the best part is? Jesus has already shown how faithful he is. He says, marry me. And oh, by the way, just in case you're wondering if I'm trustworthy, I'm going to die so that you can marry me. I'm going to experience and take on the wrath of God that you deserve so that you can enter into a covenantal relationship with me. So he is trustworthy. It also means that you are in a covenantal relationship with each other. This whole solo, I'm on my own, I don't need you people. No, you're in a covenantal relationship with another. This is why uh, it being connected to a body of Christ is good. It's where accountability happens, and we love accountability because of that. It's where sharpening happens, encouraging happens. Like, this covenant is so big, guys. So we're not actually going to take communion today. I don't want to take it lightly. We're going to do that next week. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says... For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what's unique about this cup, Jesus used the term cup in a couple different languages. The, the third cup of the, of the Passover meal would have been the cup of redemption, and that's the cup that Jesus picks up when he says, this is my new covenant. He says, look, redemption is yours. The cup that's being talked about here in the judgment is the cup of wrath of God that he had to drink all of God's judgment poured out for every single person's sin for the entirety of history. Something's happening around this cup. So when you come to the cup, of sacraments, when you come to the table to take communion, you need to examine your heart. And that's what I want to give you. I want to give you guys a week to examine your heart. And I don't mean like, oh, yeah, I'll examine my heart, but, you know, Super Bowl today, that's going to be fun, whatever, got that, you know, and then I'm gonna, uh, work tomorrow. Like, not that kind of examine heart. I mean, exactly examine your heart. Like, right now, my bet is some of you have bitterness in your heart. I mean, bitterness. You have anger or hatred that has been unrepented. 
you have unforgiveness in your heart. You continue to run into sexual immorality or into alcohol. You are arrogant and pride, prideful and divisive. You are carrying around these things like they're some cool hat instead of actually looking inward. Psalmist says, search me, O God. There's, search me and help me see what is not of you and remove that. Reveal to me anything that is not of you. Jesus says that you are connected to the vine through him. He's the vine. He is the vine and the vine dresser is God. And anything that is not of him will be cut away, pruned. Some pruning needs to happen. So I want to challenge, encourage, plead with you guys. If you, if you have said that this is, this is your cup, this is your covenant, you've entered into that covenantal relationship with Christ, then before you come to partake of communion next week, would you search your heart? Would you feel like if there's, would you look and let God see if there's anything unworthy in you? But here's, here's, the, here's the best part. Here's the best part. You need to hear this, please. I promise you there's unworthiness in you. I promise you you're going to struggle with that. But you are deemed worthy because of God and what he's done through Christ if you surrender to him. That's the most beautiful thing. You are already free and worthy of his love because of Christ, not because of you. But we, we may act in an unworthy manner. We may live in an unworthy manner. So I, I challenge you, make a call. You need to call someone and say, I forgive you. And you need to actually let that process happen. You need to, you need to deal with the fact that you have so many other idols in your life, be it reputation, money, you're chasing something that is not Christ-centered and you're trying to make it look like it is, like, it's time to, time to lay it down. Because here, here, here's why, and this is, this is what was renewed in me. I'll tell you right now, there's been a lot of times that I've taken communion, I'm like, ooh, that cracker sucks. Like, I mean, that's the first thought in my mind. Like, it's like, that's a terrible cracker, right? Like, that's, that's what's gone through my mind, honestly. And there's been other times where I'm like, ah, oh, I just, I, I have, always have bad breath after that much grape juice. How is that possible, right? Like, we have those thoughts, but here, here, here's what I'm telling you. May it not be so. When we, under, when we understand what God has done in covenantal relationship for you and me, how foolish of us to focus on the taste of a cracker or the bad breath of the juice when what we're drinking is a covenant. It's a I do to a Christ that will not let you down, to a Christ that will satisfy and fulfill you until the end to a Christ that deserves all of his love, all of our love as his bride, not just aspects of it. So I, I encourage you guys, and I challenged you guys last week to read through the scriptures, and we're going to put it up again. We've, I want you guys for eight weeks, if you'd have started on time, the men's breakfast on Thursday, it was not stellar on how many people had done it, but either way, I'm encouraging you guys, read through this. Week three, we're in Luke. It's just the, this, this is the chapters of what we're doing here. And as you're reading through this, I, I challenge you to let God speak to you in a new way so that when you come to the table next week, when you come to the table, you don't have to sit at the table of pain or of shame or of fear. You can sit at the table of hope and peace and joy because of what he has done for you at the table in the new covenant by spilling his blood and breaking his body. And you can do it in a worthy manner because you know that you are made whole. The conditions have been paid for so you can receive the unconditional love of God. And out of that unconditional love, I desire so much more to live inside of the conditions because of what Christ went through to enable us to do so. Band's going to come up, and we're going to worship some more. And I, I want to challenge you again. We're going to sing about the blood of Christ. And it's nothing but the blood of Christ. 
I want to I want to challenge you guys. Like, please, like I know Super Bowls to be fun and everything else. Don't just let this be a thought, that, that blip on a radar that just happens and you forget about it and then come next Sunday and be like, oh, I totally forgot about that. Don't. I want to I challenge you that when you stand up to sing about nothing but the blood, that that's the cry of a heart of a child that's in a covenantal relationship with a God whom adopted you, who created you, who knows you and loves you in spite of what he knows you, knows about you. And he's promising you a future that, that no one else ever can or ever will. We started at the beginning, the, come on up guys, we started at the beginning of the year with the authenticity. I want to challenge you not to drink of the cup in an unworthy manner. If you lack authenticity, if you are unwilling to allow God to work in your heart, don't go through the motions because here's, this is, this is a big fear thing to understand. I understand that. I'm not trying to shame you or guilt you into this, but either way, hear this. Judas went through the motions and he fooled everyone. And I'm betting some of you right now are fooling your spouses and your kids, your coworkers, your gospel community members. Stop going through the motions. His, his blood is way too precious to pretend. And so as we either sit or as you stand and you sing nothing but the blood, I, I pray that that's a cry of your heart where you understand because of the blood of Christ, you actually get to stand here in fear of God, reverential awe of God and what he has done in your life and what he's going to do. Because the beautiful thing that Jesus does at that table he says, hey, hey, I, I get the whole Passover thing. We're not remembering that anymore. That's good. It's cool. Great. I only remember what I've done. But then he does this unique and beautiful promise, and we'll talk more about it next week. He says, for I won't take this cup again until I'm in my Father's kingdom, but I'm coming. So in remembering his covenant, not only do we get a freedom from our past, but we get a hope for our future. Now, would you let God do the work in your heart as you walk inside of this covenantal relationship where he has, he has married you, you were bought with a price of his life. Heavenly Father, let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you for um, revealing your word and your truth to us. And for those of us that are uh, stuck in the middle of uh, r- wrestling with the pain of our sin, God, I pray that you would, you would redeem that. The most beautiful thing in this covenant is that when we enter into relationship with you, not only do we get and gain and and experience the forgiveness of sins and the freedom from death and the freedom from sins, but we are given your spirit to live in light of that. We actually get to live because of you and what you've done. We get to live for you and, and, and be obedient to your word by the work of your Holy Spirit that resides inside of us, making much of your son, Jesus Christ. So God, forgive me for times for making light of what you've done in the new covenant when you had to do so much, so much pain, so much grief, so much experience of just the most horrific things so that I could be in a covenantal relationship with you. I thank you that you took on the blood and the the torn to pieces and I didn't have to. May May I walk more holy inside of that. May we walk more fully inside of that, Lord. And as we look this week, I pray that you would overwhelm us. Like we wouldn't get, uh, there's something in our hearts or in our lives that needs to be brought to light so that we can, we can partake in, in your communion and Eucharist next week for your glory, to giving thanks for what you've done and what you're going to do. God, I pray that you would overwhelm us with it. I pray that our dreams would be full of it. I pray that our, our days would be overrun by it and you would just not let us run from whatever you're calling us to be free from. 
and that your spirit would move in a mighty way through each of us for your glory and your glory alone. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.